it started with one, one, and continued with many, with many. Lives reborn, reborn. The fearful made courageous to march against the gates of hell, hell, to trample them, trample them. We are heroes who have been sent. God is in control. So we say that statement, uh, probably more than any other statement in the whole world, it carries a lot of baggage, a lot of emotional responses, a lot of unique emotional experiences that happen when we say God is in control. In fact, before this weekend is over, more than 10,000 people will see this message and there will be probably 10,000 unique responses to the statement, God is in control. Because it depends on what's going on in your life right now, what God has done through your life, the story that you have to tell, the struggles that you have or the praises that you have, that that statement, God is in control, just conjures up different emotions. But you know, I found over 17 years of pastoral ministry um, and, and just hearing people's stories, seeing life change that's happened. If we were to take all 10,000 of those responses and put them on little sticky notes and put them on a wall, we would probably be able to clump them into just several major themes because the deal is, is that most of us view that statement, God is in control through the paradigm of the way that we view God. And so we have this perspective of how we view God and how we see Him in our life, and that affects how we feel about Him being in control. In fact, for some of you this weekend, when you hear the statement, God is in control, this is what you hear. Yep. For some of you, your life's a party, and the popo's coming up to break up the party. I mean, you... You've got everything exactly how you want it. You're having fun. And, and, and then all of a sudden, God comes in and he breaks up the party like the police. In fact, I know some of you, some of you pretty well. And this should probably be the theme song to your life. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? That some of you have seen some of your small group members on this show and they're not police officers. Yeah. So that, that could be a problem. Don't tell them it was their former life. They found freedom in Seacoast, Okay. So some of you, when you hear God is in control, you kind of get this vision of he's police and it's a prison and his control is like a prison. And then for others of you, when you hear God is in control, you get this really warm emotional response because you kind of harken back to a day when you were five years old and then footy pajamas and you're running down the hallway, slipping and sliding to get to Christmas morning. Because for you, God being in control is kind of like Santa Claus. As long as you will kind of make your list and check it twice, be a little less naughty, a little more nice, you'll get all the things that you're asking for. And so for you, God being in control means I get all the stuff. I mean, I make my list and, and he comes through on most of it. Occasionally I over ask, I understand, and maybe I'm, I'm, not, I'm not enough nice, so I have to correct that for next year. But I make my list, God comes through and he gets that taken care of for me. And then for others of you, when you hear God is in control, you hear the slamming down of a mallet and a judge yelling out, order in the court, order in the court, because for you, God is a judge. And when you sit before God, what you see God being in control about is that like you go into traffic court. And so you've gone to traffic court and you know when you're in traffic court, you know you're just a number. 
You're number four, five, six, seven, three. And the judge is going to eventually get to that number. He doesn't know who you are. He's going to make a decision based on the facts. He's going to make a judgment call. And for you, God being in control of your life, it's very distant, very disconnected. He kind of does his thing. In his little cosmic area, you do your thing down here. And every now and then, he has to come in and make a judgment call about your life. But when you hear God is in control, it feels very judgmental. And then for some of you, when you hear God is in control, you hear this. That's right. I see a few gray enough heads to remember Mighty Mouse. And you remember, Mighty Mouse would swoop in and he saved the day. He'd come in as a superhero. And for you, God being in control has this little bit of comfort, but it's a comfort kind of in a bad way because the deal is for you is you know you can mess your life up as much much as you want to. You can skirt the issues of sin. You can dabble a little bit in this, dabble a little bit in that, get into some debt, crush some relationships because in the end, you got your card punched. You're carrying a Christ follower card. And you know that mighty mouse God is going to come through. He's going to save the day. He's going to be your superhero. And when you hear God is under control, you go, great. For me, that means I can have all the issues in the world. I can make the biggest mess. God will come in and he will clean up my mess. But maybe I can paint one more picture for you. One more possibility of how God could be in control in our lives. And that is this. A loving, trusted father. Now I know for some of us, there's a lot of baggage that we carry when it comes to the word father. And I just ask that maybe you go with me just a little bit on this journey today and put aside that baggage and hear what a trusted father can be like when God is in control. And for me, it kind of looks like this. I, there was a statement um, that I had said that I would never ever say as a parent i mean i had said no matter what happens i will not say this as a parent this is when i wasn't a parent as an aside do you know what statements by non-parents about what they will or will not do as parents are they're called bold face lies is what they are and, and people who have no clue. So if you're not a parent, just stay out of the parenting business. Don't give advice to your friends on parenting because you don't have a clue. But I had said, I will never say this statement. Here it is. Because I told you so. <laughs> and you know, you, you hear it all the time and you think, that's not a good deal. Can I tell you, I can't tell you how many times in four years that I have said, because I told you so. Just four short years of parenting. Because that is the only statement that will work. And so this one such case was this. We were at the pool. And when my wife and I bought our home, we didn't even notice that the pool was in our backyard. I mean, we, we didn't have kids, so we didn't care. And now, I mean, it's the greatest thing. We can just walk out of our backyard right to the pool. And so every day, Isabel and I would go during the summer, just about every day, and go, and go down to the pool and just have some pool time in the afternoons after supper. One such case, we were down there, and I kind of noticed over the last few weeks that she had really started to have some fear when it came to the pool of jumping in and just she'd kind of get in and she'd put her swimmies on and she'd swim around and she was three, you know, and she's, she's kind of doing that thing. She was doing okay, but she wouldn't jump in anymore. And just the previous year when she was two, she was jumping in all the time and, and I'd pull her out of the water and she'd want to jump in again. And so as a dad, I saw this fear and I said, okay, I've got to nip this in the bud before it becomes bigger and pretty soon she won't even get in the water. 
So we got to the pool and I made this statement. I said, Isabel, before we leave today, you will jump in the pool. And done, right? I mean, I'm the dad. Done. Wrong. I mean, she didn't help at all with her fear. So she'd get to the, to the edge of the pool and she would get that, I mean, she'd get almost there. And I'm in the pool. I'm waiting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of catch her as she comes in. Let her go down in the water and then pull her out. I'm, I'm her safety net. So I'm there. And she would get there and she would bend. And then, you know, she would choke and she'd, and she'd run away. Then she'd get back and she'd get all pumped up. And this went on for about 30 minutes. It started to get dark outside. It, it started to get a little bit cold. People have left. My wife has sent out a search posse to see if we're going to come back. And she is just on the edge of the pool the whole time. And finally, she does that quintessential two or three-year-old question. She looks at me and she says, but daddy, why? Why do I have to jump in the pool, dad? And here's what I could have done. I could have told her, Isabel, I'm afraid that this fear is going to manifest itself. And over the years, it's going to take root in you. And as a teenager and young adult, you're going to be afraid of things. And it's going to go back to this time when you were afraid of the pool. Because that was really what I was thinking. But if I had told her that, she would have gone, why? Why, Daddy? And I, or I could have told her this. I could have said, Isabel, I am asking myself that very question right now. Because I have made the, the parenting trap mistake. I have said something and now I have to live up to it or you will see me like a chump and you will play me. And so now I have to do this. We can't leave until you jump in the pool. You've been there before parents and you say something. You go, why did I say that? Now I got to live up to it or else she's going to play me next time. So we're there and all I can say, the only thing I can think of to say is because I told you so and I'm your daddy. And you can trust me. And so she kept on going, I don't know why, why, daddy, why? And I kept saying, because I told you so. And I'm your daddy. And you can trust me. And finally, finally, she bends her knees and she jumps, this great big jump. In fact, she almost jumped over my head, which would have just gone down sideways. Because then I'd have been digging her out of the water. She wouldn't have jumped in the pool again until she was 35. But, But she came in. I caught her and, and I pulled her up out of the water and she had this aerial moment, this ah, and just came out of the water. And, and you know, if you've got kids, they get this deal where their eyelashes all stick together and the water's kind of coming out of their eyes and they're trying to blink it out. And she's doing that deal and she says these words that she says, Daddy, I trusted you. I trusted you were the first words out of her mouth when she came out of the water. And because I'm a pastor and I'm weird this way, I immediately thought there is a sermon illustration in the making. (laughs) I got to have more kids so I can have more sermon illustrations. And she came out of the water and she said, Daddy, I trusted you. I trusted you. And I got this picture, a picture of a trusted father who finally, we jump in the water and and that we can say, God, I trusted you. Because sometimes God, being in control, He has to say, because I said so. And I'm your daddy, and you can trust me. And so for some of you, you looked ahead, or you know what series we're in, you're looking at Acts chapter 10 and going, 
How does this play into Acts chapter 10? Well, we're going to see that in just a moment because I think it does very, very much so. Let, let me try and sum up Acts chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you may want to turn there. We're going to kind of bounce in and out of there a little bit, but it's great just to have it open. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 10 as we continue in the series Sent and talking about how God has sent us to change the world. And this is a key, key chapter in the book of Acts. Let me try to sum up the whole story for us, and then we'll unpack ju- just one of the major issues and major themes in this chapter. We've got Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. So he, he's not a Jew. There, there are Jews and there are Gentiles, and Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion. He's over lots and lots of men in the Roman army. And, and so he, here's Cornelius, this Gentile. But Luke tells us something in Acts about Cornelius. He says that he was a God-fearing man. He was someone who as best he knew how, and he didn't know completely how, but as best he knew how was good. He's a good guy. And he gave to the poor and he served people. And and we see in Acts that God had obviously noticed and saw this expression of what maybe we would call kind of seeking God. He had seen this in Cornelius and the seeking God. And so he sends an angel to him and told him, told Cornelius to send for Peter and then to listen to what Peter has to say. So Cornelius is this good guy. He's trying to, to serve God. He's trying his best to do good, give to the poor, serve the people. And he's there and God sends an angel, says, go to Peter. He will tell you something. You need to listen to him. Now, Peter, uh, on the other side, over here in Joppa, is there and he's on a roof. And God comes to him and gives him this vision. And here's the vision that he gives Peter. He gives Peter this vision of unclean and clean food all spread out on this big blanket. And he, and he says to Peter, he says, rise and eat. Now you have to understand that for Peter, this was what had to appear like a trap. Because for all of the history of, of, of God's word, everything that God had ever said, as he had said, do not mix the unclean with the clean. There were dietary rules that were set up. There were entire uh, just religious practices that were set up to fight against this. And he had said, do not eat unclean food. And so Peter sees this and says, God, are you sure? Are you sure this is what you want me to do? And so three times. God says to Peter, first in verse 15, but over and over again, he says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. In other words, I've taken care of this, Peter. I am in control. He says, Peter, don't worry about it. But Peter, three times it takes him. And even while Peter is still pondering in his heart, in fact, the Bible says that he was having this inner turmoil in his heart about what was going on. While that's happening up on this rooftop in Joppa, three Gentiles from Cornelius' house, probably part of the Roman uh, soldiers, come and they knock on Peter's door and they say, hey, we're here. We're going to take you to Cornelius because God told Cornelius for us to come get you. You are being sent to Cornelius to go and tell him something. And Peter finally gets it. And you've got to imagine that this was a hard thing for Peter. Three Roman soldiers knocking on the door. If you'll remember back through Luke and and through what we've seen in Acts, things have never gone good for Peter when Roman soldiers have come and knocked on the door. I mean, this is not... But for some reason, he gets it that God is in control. And he goes. And he goes with these men. And it says that he goes and he he goes to Caesarea where Cornelius is. and, And Cornelius has his whole family there. It's like a month's corner family reunion. I mean, he's got everybody 
Yeah, they got the t-shirts on, fried chicken going on, some coleslaw, and everybody's there waiting because Cornelius knew if this man Peter is coming to tell me something about this God that I'm trying to find, and it's important, I want my whole family, everybody who works for me, my servants, everybody, I want them to hear. So he gathers them all in. Peter preaches, they repent, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, and they're saved, and they're baptized in water. All of this because Peter, after three times, finally obeyed God, finally went to where he was sending them to. And because Cornelius didn't just think it was bad burritos, but thought, okay, this is something that God wants me to do. I'm going to send for this guy, Peter, who knows what's going to happen. Because they came to this recognition that God is in control. Now, there's a ton of stuff here in this chapter. I mean, there are race issues in this chapter, as Peter has to deal with that. Um, there is this whole 180 of the entire Christian uh, religious experience as God had set it up so far. There are changing of rules. There, there is dietary laws going away, unclean versus clean. There is the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the Gentiles. There are these Gentiles coming, the gospel coming to these Gentiles and them coming into the family of God. There is a ton of stuff there. In fact, so much so that Luke chooses in Acts chapter 11 to continue with more details about this story. And Pastor Greg is going to look at that next week, just even more implications about what this meant for Peter as well. But as I read this chapter, and I kind of saw this umbrella event that was going on, this big event that was going on, this umbrella theme over it, but what really boils down to here is that Peter had to trust God because everything was changing. Nothing like Peter had planned it for it to go this way. I mean, this is nothing like the story that Peter saw happening. There was no Gentile involvement in the plan. There was no writing, rewriting of the dietary laws. And there was nothing that was going to change like this. And as I see this, I kind of resonate with Peter. I kind of resonate with this guy who goes, Okay, I don't understand this tension between God being in control over everything intimately in control with every detail and this tension of that we have these choices and this freedom and and that and then somewhere in the middle there is these things these rules that these guidelines that have been made and i just try to stay on these guidelines i try to stay on the story that it seems like god's writing and then all of a sudden he changes everything and he wants to move in a different way he wants to move in a different way in our lives. And, and we've prayed for this thing to happen this way and God chooses to do it another way. And we've thought that we've finally figured God out and all of a sudden He changes again and He moves in a different way in our lives and He changes things in our lives and He causes us to do things that we never thought we were going to do. And I imagine that Peter probably felt like a lot of you this weekend, maybe at this point in your life, you're on the edge of the pool and you're standing there and what should look like this five foot little placid pool is looking like these raging waters and you can't hardly even see that the God, the Father, is in the water saying, you can trust me. Jump. You can trust me. I've got the will. Just follow me. Don't try to be in control, but follow me. And Peter, probably like most of us, just wanted to be in control himself. When he's questioning God, he's actually just saying, God, are you sure? Because actually, hey, why don't I take the driver's seat for just a moment? I'll drive this thing in. Seems like you may have had a bad morning, God. Let's, let's figure this thing out because this, I mean, this is thousands of years and, and you're going to change it. That, uh, maybe you, we, let's, let's simmer on this. Let's take the night. Let's sleep on it, God. 
Let me be in control. And God says, no, Peter. I'm in control. And three times, which I think is no coincidence seeing that Peter denied Jesus three times, three times he has to tell Peter, I'm in control. See, Peter was like many of us. There are two types of people in the world. There are those who think that they're smart enough to think they're in control and those who are smart enough to actually know that they're not. And I find myself when I'm on the pool side and God is doing unbelievable things and He's calling me in directions that I've never dreamed He would and things are happening in my life that I don't understand and people are being hurt in ways that I never, I just can't understand and there's pain and all this stuff going on that I think if I'll just step back from the side of the pool that I've taken back control. So I step away from God the Father. I step away from trusted hands and I step back and I go, you know what? I will take control back. And really though, what we've done is we've relinquished that control to our fears. And we've relinquished that control to our doubts. And we've relinquished that control to what we think should be, but in no way are we in control. Because God is in control. This is a big word in theological circles. It's called the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is this. It's a biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule and control and that nothing happens without His Permission. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. It says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His, to the purpose of Him who works all things, circle all, all things according to the counsel of His will. God is in control. He has predestined it, and all things are under His permission. And His will. His purposes are all inclusive. And they are never, ever thwarted. God is in control. Look at Isaiah 46, 11, Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God says, I call the birds and they fly across the sky. I tell you to walk this way and you walk this way. I make the seas roar. I make the storms come. God says, I am in control of every single detail. And everything that happens, nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing ever wakes Him up in the morning, wringing His hands, thinking, I I don't know how this happened. I don't know how it went this way, because God permits everything that happens to happen. You see, the sovereignty of God is not merely that God has the power and the right to govern all things, is what Peter was learning, but that He does so always, And without exception, the sovereignty of God is not just in principle, but it's in practice. And I think for us as Christ followers, it's very easy for us to say, and even those who aren't Christ followers, to say, well, if there is a God, if there's a God, yeah, He's in control. And He has the right to be in control. But but obviously He's not, because look at what's happening in the world. He must not be. But the truth that we're finding here is that God is in control. He's behind every detail of your life. He's behind every detail of my life. He was behind everything that he was saying to Peter. He knew this was way, the way it was going to happen. I've wrestled with this. Because this one's hard for me. This tension between God being in control and freedom and choices and pain. And I don't understand it completely even yet. But, but I think I've got this, this, this little glimpse of maybe how it works out. And as we said earlier, God's purposes are never thwarted. His purpose was that we would worship Him. 
He created us so that we would worship Him. See, and it was a win-win situation because God needed worship, desires worship. So He created those who have to worship. We worship something. All of us here this weekend are worshiping something. For many of us, it's ourselves. For many of us, it's our families or our children. But we are worshiping something. And so there's this great win-win that happens where God needs worship. But what God understood because he's God is that without obedience, there is no worship. There has to be obedience. And so really the sum of worship is obedience. That scripture says to obey is better than sacrifice. And so what God's doing here is he's getting rid of the sacrificial system. Jesus one time for, for all is a sacrifice and now obedience is worship. And then what God understood even more is that there cannot be obedience without the potential of disobedience. And so there is this freedom that comes. God needing worship, desiring worship has to give us freedom because if we're just robots and we're just walking through life doing the robot thing, there's not worship there. There's just robotic people following after a God who's made them do what they're doing. So he gives us this freedom. And here's the beautiful paradox of freedom. In freedom, there is this unbelievable opportunity for obedience. With this freedom, we have this, this opportunity to obey God, which equals worship. But there is also this glaring potential for pain. And we see it all over the world. God grants us this freedom and this grace because He wants us to obey, because He wants us to worship. And then we see pain that comes into people's lives. And we don't understand And here's what I've woken up to, and I don't fully get it. And I hope maybe you just get a glimpse of it this weekend, is that it is not our role to understand. If I can understand, if God is small enough for me to understand, He is not big enough to be a God that I want. See, if I can understand everything that He's trying to tell me, then then He can't move in the way that's big like I need Him to move in my life. And so our role is not to understand. Our role is to trust when he's saying, because I said so, and I'm your daddy, and you can trust me. And so there's this tension that happens. There's this tension that happened with with Peter as well. But what we see in this is if we grasp this whole thing, God is in control. He's in control of everything. It's not our role to understand. His purpose is worship. He gets that from obedience, which it only comes from freedom. Then we take this comfort. There's this comfort to know that God is in control of our lives. Every single detail. He's in control of everything that's happening in your life. He's given you freedom, but He's in control. God can be trusted with your lives. God is in control of your families. It may be going in places that you never thought. Your relationship with your spouse may be crumbling. Your children may be going and making choices in their freedom that you never thought they would make and you can't stand it. It's killing you. And God is there. And there's this tension where we say He's in control of our families. But, but God, if you're in control then why did you let it go that way? Then God, if you're in control, why did you let him meet her? Because if he never meets her, they never have the affair and I'm never broken like this. God, why did you let them get in the car? Because if they don't get in the car, 
and they never go that way down the road, if they don't go that way down the road, then it never happens. How many of you have played these scenarios out in your mind? And so there's this tension, but we take this comfort in knowing that God is in control. His purposes have never been thwarted. God is in control of our communities. We're not the first to ever care about our communities. We're not the first to ever serve them. Not only, we're not the first church to ever serve them, but we're also not the first to ever be there because God was there first. He loves our communities. God is in control of our world. Nothing ever surprises Him when foreign leaders make the decisions that they do, when our leaders make the decisions that they do, when things happen in our country the way that they happen or don't happen or how we feel they should happen. God is in control. He knows exactly what's going on. God is in control of His church. And so through all this, there's this comfort. Although there's this tension, there is this comfort to know that we can rest in the fact that we can come out of the water screaming one day, Daddy, I trusted you. I trusted you. So what can we gain from this? How does this affect our lives and what can we know? What do we know because God is in control? The first thing that we know because God is in control is that Jesus' life and death changed the rules. They changed everything. Look at Acts 10, 15. It says, And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. When Jesus came onto the scene, he changed everything. He changed all the rules. His life and death. God, being God, being in control of the situation, having the right to sovereignly change everything, he did. And we thank God that he did because through Jesus, where there was strife, there is now peace. Through Jesus... Where there was death ruled, God showed that He was in control of death. And He rose Jesus from the dead. And He showed that not even death can keep Him down. Through Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus shows that that God is in control of everything, including death. It also shows that He is the only way for forgiveness. And so where there was a sacrificial system, now God says Jesus paid all of the sacrifice. He paid everything for you. He shows that Jesus is Lord of all. That He is the Lord of the Gentiles. That He's the Lord of the broken. That He's the Lord of those who have it together. He's the Lord of those who don't have it together. He's the Lord of those who have shown up on cops at some point. He is the Lord of all. And He's sovereign. And He's in control. And we can't decide who God loves and who He doesn't love. And through Jesus' life and resurrection, He shows that we have the ability to be forgiven. See, there's comfort in knowing that if I'm in control, as hard as I can work, I will never get to a place where God, who is righteously angry with our sin, will ever accept me. But through Jesus, He changes all the rules. Where it says that the wages of sin are death, it now says that the wages of Jesus' death on the cross is forgiveness for you and I. See, I like God being in control. When I'm in control, I really mess things up. And when you're in control, you mess them up even worse. (laughs) But God being in control changes everything. Second thing that we can know because God is in control is that the Holy Spirit comes and goes as He pleases. Look at Acts 10.44. It says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. I love this. This is the Holy Spirit of God showing us and showing Peter, Hey, by the way, I'm God. And I can come and go as I please. The Holy Spirit is like the wind, John tells us. 
The wind that blows, it says, where it wills. And you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it came or whether it goes. So everyone who's born of the Spirit is like the wind. And we see this picture of the wind, the Holy Spirit blowing and coming and going as it pleases. And as we read Acts, and as we read the the New Testament and see the Holy Spirit starting to move in people's lives, I have this fear for myself and I fear for you as well, that we begin to think of the Holy Spirit as this this being that's created for us. It's kind of our gift. And we we kind of carry the Holy Spirit around. And and when we need the Holy Spirit, we go, all right, here, just a little dose of Holy Spirit here. Okay, now go, go, go away. I don't want you in my life right now. And what we're learning here is that the Holy Spirit is God. And God is in control. Because see, this is how the, way, the way it happens in Acts chapter 10. Before the sermon was even over. I mean, Peter's gotten pretty good at preaching now. He's a good preacher. He gives the invitation time. When he gives the invitation time, the Holy Spirit comes. Strange stuff starts to happen. People talk, speak in tongues. People, houses are shaken. And Peter's got a good deal going on here. He knows I get to this part. I go, boom, and this is when it happens. All of a sudden, Peter starts to speak. And as soon as he begins to speak, he doesn't even get to get to the invitation, which, by the way, is just killer for a, a pastor. I mean, come on. Let us get through the message before you move, God, okay? And so he does this deal, he speaks, and boom, the Holy Spirit falls on everybody, showing Peter that, hey, I don't need you. I move, I come, I go, I act, I do as I please. See, because so far in the book of Acts, they're getting used to the Spirit showing up when they want Him to show up. And all of a sudden, there's a reminder that the Holy Spirit is God, and He is in control. And as Spirit-filled believers... I believe that's important for us to remember, an important reminder, because the Holy Spirit is God, and He is in control. So we've seen so far two of the three valuable lessons that we learn from the sovereignty of God. The first is that Jesus, life and death, changed the rules. It changed everything. And then the second is that the Holy Spirit, because He is God, is free to come and go as He wills. We can't dictate what the Holy Spirit does. We just have to move as the wind and move with the Holy Spirit. And then the third thing that we learn and that can play a valuable, valuable part in our life is that God the Father can be trusted. You know, I believe when we think about the control of God, one of the things that I have learned the most about God is that there is comfort in the control of God. The fact that He is in control gives me comfort. In fact, He can be trusted. I want you to hear the story of someone whose life has been changed by the comfort that they've found in the control of God. Susan, uh, tell me about your family and kind of your faith journey, how you came to know Christ, and just a little bit about you and your family. Sure, Sean. Um, I didn't come to faith in Christ till I was in my mid-30s. I grew up going to church. Uh, my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents were all members of a denomination that was a, an offshoot of the Mormon church. And uh, we went to church faithfully, but I realized as an adult that I really never learned about Jesus Christ, about salvation. Uh, I learned about the church and about church doctrine. As an adult, I married and had a couple of kids, uh, Russell and Rachel my precious children, and we, uh, it was through them that I actually came to faith. We lived, we had a Baptist minister that moved in next door to us, and he and his family invited my young children to go to vacation Bible school one summer, and through that process, I 
ended up going to that church, coming to know the Lord. Unfortunately, um, after 18 years of marriage to my children's father, our, our marriage ended in divorce. Um, the children and I were devastated. It was sad beyond belief. Uh, sad mostly for the children. Divorce is devastating for children. It's devastating for the parents, but it's truly more devastating for the children. Mm -hmm. So Russell and Rachel and I began our life together. Uh, I, a single mother, and the kids, uh, children of, of divorced parents. We belonged to this church. We were active in this church, and we began to grow in our faith, and, and uh, we had church fellowship and good friends. Uh, I was um, going to chaperone a youth soccer game. And while we were at this game, across the way, I spotted this handsome man. Mm -hmm. Now that I was single and had been single for, for several years, uh, caught my eye, and apparently I caught his eye too. Mm -hmm. And his name was John. And John and I began to date. And um, after much coffee and coconut cream pie, we got engaged and got married in April of 2005. So life had really changed. Um through divorce, it had been hard, you'd gone several years, and but it had begun to pick up. I mean, things were really, really looking cool and for you and your future and everything, but then uh, everything changed. Everything changed with uh, one phone call, and uh, tell us just a little bit about what happened. Everything did change, Sean, on that horrible day, October 13, 2005. I received that call that every parent dreads, that is every parent's nightmare. My beautiful 22-year-old son had been killed in a car accident. You can't imagine the pain that, that ensued. I knew that God was somewhere near, but I couldn't feel him. My heart was broken. I was in so much pain, you just you can't imagine. You just can't imagine. Uh, I was angry. I was bitter. I was resentful. And mostly, I was just in pain. My son had my baby son, the son that I grew inside of me that I loved so much. Not only had he died, he had died in this brutal, horrific accident. Died so traumatically, I just couldn't begin to even understand that or accept it. It was very, very hard. So your faith had grown. You had begun to uh, kind of see a new future. And then all of a sudden, your life is hit by a train, basically, that just throws you off the tracks of the journey that it seemed like you were on. And I know that you said there was some anger and there was some, some bitterness, uh, but I, I know you and I know your family and I began to watch you during this process and I saw something happen at some point um, where you began to serve others who were going through similar things and you began to trust God in a way that, that I don't even understand. Actually, Sean, when we, when John and I first got married, we very much wanted to, to serve in some capacity. And of course, when Russell died, all that got put on the back burner. But as we healed and as the Holy Spirit healed our hearts, we began to have that desire again to serve. And we prayed and asked the Lord. And what came to our hearts was children. What, what better place for us to serve? Both mm -hmm. of us had lost a child, lost a son, and we had a love for children that we couldn't give to them anymore. So we, we felt the need to give it. So we do do the children, uh, children's church, we do uh, two-year-olds and three-year-olds, mm -hmm. and we get a lot, it, it's a pleasure for us to do it, we get a lot out of it. And we recently became involved with the Dream Center and feel like the Lord is, is going to use us there. We are tutoring uh, the children on Wednesday nights, and um, you know, God is, He is into the details of our life. Mm -hmm. I've met a young man there 
and I'm, I've been tutoring him and working with him. He lost his mother four years ago to cancer, and I lost Russell four years ago. And you don't tell me that's not God working in our lives. Susan, uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story. As I think back to uh, the story about Isabel in the pool and her coming out of that water just screaming, Daddy, I trusted you. Daddy, I trusted you. As I look at your life and this raging sea that you've been involved in, I see someone who has come busting out of the sea saying, Daddy, I trusted you. Daddy, I trusted you. And other people are seeing that as well. And so thank you. And uh, thank you for what you've been able to share with thousands of people this weekend who I think are going to be touched by your story and, and learn how to trust God that He is in control. And there is comfort in that control. Thank you so much. So I guess the question for us is how do we respond to that control? Do we allow it to comfort us? Or does it somehow feel like it's trapping us? We try it our own way and we continue to battle against it. Or do we allow God to take us through bitterness, through anger, through hurt, through pain, through bad choices, and to end up on the other side being able to say, Daddy, I trusted you. I trusted you. Let's pray before we respond. Father, I thank you that you are in the details of our life. God, you are in the details of matching up someone who lost their son with someone who lost a mom. You're in the details of mending hearts. You're in the details of where we go and who we talk to and God with every single step though there is freedom you, you want what's best for us God as the most authentically real father you love your children more than anyone and God as we are so afraid to jump into the water of your grace sometimes You're standing and you're saying, you can trust me. So God, we thank you for that trust. Help us to embrace it. God, we trust you to help us to trust you when we can't do it on our own. Father, I pray that you would move in people's lives, move in my life, and bring us to a new place of understanding you're the Father and you're in control. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an opportunity to respond now. And, uh, you know, for some of you, you may say, I'm just not there. Just not there. You know, I believe that God knows where you are, and He's there. He doesn't have anywhere where He expects you to be, He is there. So you just may need to go to the cross and say, here, here it is, God, I lay it out to you. This is that thing. This is that area. This is that person. This is that pain that I'm not ready to, to accept, but God, I need your help. And he's going to take you on a journey to do that because that's what Jesus did at the cross. He paid for that pain. And maybe there are others of you who are, uh, you're the Corneliuses amongst us. 
and, and you would say, you know, I'm trying the best I can, uh, and I, I, I think I think I kind of want to serve God, but I don't really understand it. But today you've heard enough of the gospel to understand that Jesus came, He died, He rose for you. And being good doesn't cut it. Trusting in a God who you can who you can know is in control is what you have to do. And so just like Cornelius, maybe today, you're going to respond and you're going to allow the Holy Spirit to fill you and you're going to be saved by Jesus. Jesus is here to save you. And then we've got another opportunity for you as a part of our response time. What Cornelius did and his whole family is they were baptized in water. But today, you can be baptized in water. We've got all the things that you would need, all the supplies. We've got towels and shorts and shirts. And if you today say, you know what, I've never been baptized. Today's the day that I'm going to do it. I'm going to follow through on that because God is in control of all the details and He had me here today for this purpose. I pray that you'd respond that way. And then for all of us, we're going to celebrate together. We're going to come and take communion and it is in remembrance of Jesus' death because God is when He took control over death and sin that we come and we celebrate and we take of the cup and we take of the bread. Remember that Jesus is God and He was in control when He was on the cross. And he did that for us. Let's respond together and worship. And let's worship a mighty, mighty God. Let's worship together.